thing struck me when Katie was praying is, you know, that there was a lot of people who went a lot of different directions out of the ordinary when you get a chance for summer break and internationally and down south and not every which way and direction. I think it is always a good practice to understand what is like adventure and experience versus what is rest. Um, because just because you travel doesn't necessarily mean it was restful. <laughs> and and the rest is really important. Um, it's, it's baked into our design of who we are. So when you choose to make your plans, make sure you are counting for rest for your family. And it's even something that like, yeah, the Sabbath was meant to be a day of rest. Um, and I talked about it a little bit in Sunday school, how the difference between Many of us come here and just we were prepared to serve because we're a small congregation, and that's good. But also, it's not if you do not account for the rest you are designed for. And that's primarily what worship should be, as we can rest in our Father, rest in the Lord, take rest from our work. A lot of times we think of our work as simply the nine to five or whatever the paycheck comes from. But we find we know that like as as parents, as community members, even as church members, a lot of our lives actually is work, even if it's not the, the breadwinner job. Um, so just pay close attention to that. I, it's the end of the summer, so a lot of our plans are behind us. But are you getting enough rest? And are you then able to do good work and not just kind of go in this gray apathy in between and all that? I know um, we've had to think about that a little bit with our plans in our summer and you know, upcoming plans as well. Uh, I am thankful again to teach from the Bible. Um, I am grateful that you guys are gracious church family that you, you never lay. I, I know that you're grateful, um, for me and for Andy. And I, I know you're grateful that we get a chance to have Bible teaching in person, even though we enjoy what's live. And also you give me grace knowing it's not always the best Bible teaching. I never promise the best Bible teaching, um, but I promise I've prayed and put in effort, but then I would appreciate if you always praying for me as we correctly, we want to correctly handle the word of God and the truth. And so I am not perfect. What you hear today will not be perfect, but by the grace of God, it will be effective. And like God's word will be communicated well and effective Then get to the depths of our souls. And we may not even know quite the power it's working on us. So as we get prepared to dive into God's word, let us pray. Uh, Father, please do not let it be my ideas or my words. Um, let it be yours. Speak clearly to us. Let our hearts be ready to receive and lay down our own crowns, our lives, to, to really take on your authority instead of fighting for our own. Let us be unafraid to go out of our own control so that Christ may take complete control. Um, empower us to do that through your spirit. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Okay, so... Uh, always a question I think is good to start and make, uh, get us ready. Um, loading here in one second. So what is your foundation? Again, usually the question I bring at the beginning, is like, oh, that's like a big question. I don't know how to answer that. And that's kind of by design. It is by design. What is your foundation? I could also, I thought about just putting like, what do you believe? Um, every moment you are believing something. It's not like, I'm not believing anything right now. Absolutely. Because something is keeping you in that seat in this current context. So you are believing something. I think there's a variety of things you're believing of why you sit there and don't get up right now. 
and why you're quiet instead of yelling over me. Um, a lot of it's probably social etiquette. You believe it's important, it's respectful to those people in this room. Um, what if one of you starts yelling right now, all of a sudden you realize, oh, it makes people think differently about me. So there's probably some of that happening. Um, why you even chose to get up, leave your home, and come here it's based on what you believe, what you believe about what church um, gatherings, a church family, what worship services, hearing God's word. You believe something about what that's all doing. Um, and so you made a choice to come here. Uh, you're making a choice, you know, when you choose what to eat for lunch. You're believing something about what you, you put into your body, what you do to your body, what you say to others. At all moments, you never cease believing something. And I think where we go wrong sometimes is we like, well, yeah, I'm just, I'm totally not, I'm just not engaged. I don't know. Um, I've told many of you this, but this summer we officially made I don't know, and excuse me, my language, because we made I don't know a bad word in the hair household. Uh, because uh, what we found is a lot of time it is just apathy. It's actually laziness. Um, when actually we do, we may not understand fully, but we have clues all the time about why am I doing this? Why am I feeling this way? And usually we just say, I don't know, because like, Maybe we don't want to get to the depths of like what I'm believing in those situations because we're either, again, lazy, maybe apathetic, like I, don't, I just don't care. Uh, maybe you're afraid. I'm often afraid. Like, oh, that a, a true glimpse inside Wake's heart. It's a scary place, believe it or not. Um, so all of that is to say, okay, really, you build a foundation. That's a uh, it's figurative language. Like you don't really have a stone foundation as a part of your mind. But you know, as your framework for viewing the world, your worldview, you have a foundation and it's got some building blocks to it. Most of us, the building blocks still includes in this type of community, family. Like that's an important building block or whatever. Um, even if it's not um, the immediate biological family, it's probably now somebody you care for and love. And that's probably your building block is like, the thing I exist is to make that person satisfied or to make them love me or, or give them an opportunity to love me. It's probably at the foundation is family relationships. But it's more than that, too. I think you all probably would recognize that, admit, like, hey, there, there's a few big blocks of, like, why I make the choices I do and lead the families I do. So that's an important, I think, question. Like, what is it for you? Like, please don't just say, I don't know, or he's not going to call on me. You know I will. <laughs> so like have your answer what is i mean even if you're like ah, it's hard yes that you can freely admit instead of saying i don't know just say it's hard wake it's hard instead of i don't know like it is hard to start to discern what's happening in the depths of our hearts and souls but this is life what you are building a foundation on determines eternity eternity and eternal well-being so don't be afraid to do the hard things instead of just turn on the radio and drown out the world. Like that is the easier choice. But I hope you're not here to find what's easy. I hope you're here to find what's true, what's good, what's everlasting. So that leads us to our scripture today. Um, so it would have been, I, I thought it was just last week. I forgot we had a guest speaker last week. But two weeks ago, Alistair Begg got us into Luke 20. And of course, we're culminating, right? When we get to Luke, we're culminating on the whole gospel. The whole gospel and the whole reason Jesus came is for salvation. 
It wasn't to give a good example, but he did. But that wasn't the primary purpose. He says, I am going to Jerusalem to lay my life down for salvation. From what? From death. Where does death come from? From sin. Who's plagued by sin? All of us. And that's the primary purpose. And he's at Jerusalem now. It's basically at the last day where he's in public ministry before he goes into uh, Monday, Thursday, basically. So we're heading right towards that. So these are some of the very last public teaching, preaching moments that we see Christ having. Um, And we see the main antagonist is there, uh, which is really represented by the teachers of the law. Those are the people who have authority at the time. It's, it's sometimes tempting for me not to recognize exactly what the Pharisees and teachers of the law and the Sanhedrin, what their mindset was, but I don't ever want to forsake that we forget. Hey, they really were the church. And the church is the primary antagonist against the Son of God. And it, it, the Pharisees are propping themselves up, not only as like, I'm not so sure about you, but saying, no, we are most definitely going to defy whatever it is exactly you've come to do. It is not what we want. Um, So that is our our setting here as we enter Luke 20. I'll read Luke 20, verse 9 through 19. If you have scripture, either uh, in your Bible or on your phone, please read along. This is the English Standard Version. And it says, He, Jesus, began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and lent it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants So they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one also, they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. We can stop there. So, a powerful parable. Uh, Again, it seems that pretty clear to me who plays what role in the parable? A vineyard. Who's the planter? That's God the Father, right? He's the creator, the origin of all life. He plants a vineyard. It is his right. He's entitled to do with the vineyard what he will. Who are, um, who are the tenants now who are supposed to manage a vineyard? Well, in many cases we see here, it's the, the teachers of the law at this time, the Pharisees, really, um, any other religious leader that we find in Palestine and Israel and Jerusalem at this time. I would say that the, it's not abundantly clear. It doesn't just include all of us, though, that I think it definitely responds to the teachers of the law, to the Pharisees, 
But I, I found it helpful and I think it's effective and, and true to also see myself as one of the tenants um, as a caretaker of what God's established. Like that absolutely describes us. Um, I don't think anybody's a vineyard owner here, but we've talked about it in the parable of talents a few weeks ago or last month. You absolutely have been given something. The, the same owner who planted this vineyard, he, he's planted something in you. Like your ability to think, speak, act, move, have your being, it's, it's a vineyard. And so I do think it's valuable to see myself in it, although I, that's not the primary thing I'm trying to, or think that God's talking to us today about. Who else? The servants. Like, who are the servants sent by the owner to go collect some of the fruits? And what it seems pretty clear is like, hey, these are the messengers sent by God to proclaim truth. To say, hey, any of you have been given anything by God? In this case, the vineyard tenants, those who are called to care for the owner's creation here, please just share some of it back. It all belongs to him. He's calling for some of it back right now. And then what do the tenants do? They treat them shamefully. They beat them. They wound them. They kill them. Um, and so really the three main actors there, the owner of the vineyard, the planter of the vineyard, the tenants who are called to care for the vineyard, who are on, it's on lease. They are free to use it for their enjoyment, for their good, for their care. Um, but it's not theirs. It doesn't belong to them. They don't own it. They are loners, not owners. And then finally, the servants that are sent to interact between the two who are shamefully beat. What we've seen there is that's the prophets, really. Um, and the prophets are the Old Testament prophets. That's primarily when we say prophets. That's what uh, Scripture is showing us. Like, hey, there are men who have come with words from God, and they've spoken them as clear as they could. And we see in many cases they were rejected, and in some cases killed. Not every case were they killed, um, but in many cases they were running for them, their lives. They completely dependent on God just to bring a message of truth, and that the world was often rejected them. Israel, God's people, were often rejecting them and not listening to them. It's not just the Old Testament prophets who's who's a prophet that we see in the New Testament, even in the same very gospel. Um, it's John the Baptist, right? Uh, John the Baptist is saying, hey, the kingdom of heaven is here. Repent, believe. And then Jesus himself also acts as a prophet, but also we see him in this parable as the final, the fourth piece, which is the son sent to the vineyard to be like, hey, at least he's different from a regular servant one of the ones who don't come with a divine title besides given uh, a divine message. It's the son of God shown by his miracles and wonders. He's doing crazy things. You send him into the world. Surely he gets their attention. True. He did get the tenants attention, right? But not in the way the, the master was helpful for. So three, three big points out of this parable. I would really love for us to chew on. The first is that God is the origin. This has become really one of the fronts of our culture. Um, and when I say front, I mean a battlefront. For your heart and mind, it, the, you can't go after Jesus very well in our day and age. Why? Because it's, it's really difficult for someone who says, I don't want, I don't care about the owner of the vineyard. I don't want God the Father. I don't want authority in my life. It's, it's, very, it's much more easy to go after origin than Christ. Why? Because Christ is so well documented by all of history 
that there's really no one who denies the life and times of Jesus. There's nowhere I've come up that can come with a, radical, a, a, a feasible case to say Jesus was entirely made up because many people who don't point to him as God clearly point to them in their records. It's like it, it was as fact as not as I stand here because we can't pick him up with our senses, but if you believe in any ancient history at all, you can't deny Jesus the man. He was there. He's well documented by those who believed he was the son of God and by those he wasn't. But then we take it a step further and start to say, well, okay, but the accounts of him being God, not just a man and a good teacher. Well, first of all, almost everyone also agrees he had the power of a prophet and a good teacher. And most world religions point to him as such. The difference is resurrection from the dead. And that's where many were like, no, that's a made up part. Um, Islam just thinks it's completely made up. They, they have many uh, theories of like, they don't even deny necessarily that he was crucified. Um, they just have theories of what happened after the crucifixion of what would explain the wildfire of belief that happened after Christ rose from the dead is what they would add the quotes. I do not. And so that's where, honestly, it also becomes very difficult and as C.S. Lewis said, you can't really have Jesus as a good teacher. And even if they fabricated a great story, like obviously made up in the resurrection from the dead, even if you get that, what you are left with is a crazy Jesus. Because Jesus himself said he would rise from the dead. So you either have a lunatic or a Messiah and a Savior. And said so C.S. Lewis, he doesn't leave any in-betweens. And that's where a lot of the world religions today have left Jesus is like that in between, like, ah, he's a good teacher. Like, yeah, but what about all the things he said that didn't come true that he particularly said, particularly him rising from the dead and being salvation for sins. How do you account for that? And honestly, I don't think they can. And so it leaves us with Jesus is, is great evidence for God being real. And so much so that if you struggle with the old Testament, Jesus is your best evidence for going back and getting answers there, the things I don't understand, including God is the origin. So I think this is why the battlefront in our culture is often origin of species, origin of my life, your life, is because Jesus, the evidence in Jesus is almost too compelling to attack. Um, so you won't see many talks about Jesus because it's very powerful to see the Son of God in the Gospels and then even in our own lives, and I think the Spirit convicts us of it. But what you start to do is like, okay, I think we see the arguments against God find themselves like, don't put too much emphasis on Jesus. It's too powerful. There's too much power in that. Let's go to origin. And said, when you get to origin, it's like, oh, the world definitely has done well on casting doubts. Uh, how so? This is because we see scripture um, that if we take a very literal view of scripture, it looks like the world is you know, between five and eight thousand dollars, uh, five to eight thousand years old, maybe ten. And so it's like, ooh, but that's really difficult to believe when you see ice sheets that look like millions of years, right? And so, oh, now we have about like, see, your Bible isn't true. And and it's like, okay, I'm not an expert on the origin of of creation itself, but I don't think we need to be. You want to enter the battlefronts of like proving that God created. Um, all right, it's difficult. But once you take God out of the equation of origin, of creation, of species, of you, 
Do you get more or less questions? And that's what Tim Keller was so consistent in saying is anyone who is either an atheist or agnostic, meaning an atheist, there is no God. An agnostic, a little more intellectually honest, I would say, and just saying, I don't know. Again, curse word in my view, like, I don't know. Um, the reason that is so difficult is because when you don't know, and then you do not put a divine creator at the beginning in whatever form, um, whether that's in a literal seven days or over the course of millions and billions of years, you have so many more unanswered questions than when you do put a divine intelligent creator at the beginning of origin. So therefore, an agnostic or an atheist either has to be one of two things. Apathetic, which I think the, the obvious dangers of apathy um, when it comes to who are you, whew, it leads to despair. And you can see that in examples of people you know, or maybe in your own life. So there's either apathy, or there is the most incredible faith that, excuse me, that far exceeds our own faith in God and Christ. Because there's so many unanswered questions, so many more unanswered questions if you take God out of that uh, sentence. There is the origin. Well, where did it came from? Where did it come from? And you go into scientific circles, and I know Chris Kammer has been down these roads, and you can always ask him. He would love to talk to you about it. But like, so what are the answers? And you get legitimate uh, stories of saying, hey, this is our my best theory. Your best theory includes a designer that is somewhere in the galaxy that planted life and then has gone and abdicated us for now. Which what? That sounds like a lot of the way a lot of people view God. So even if they don't call him the God of the Bible that we see in the Hebrew Bible or through... Uh, Greek and Hebrew scripture, they've come up with their own intelligent design, some other. So you see agnostics are saying, ah, I don't know about God. But it does seem logical there was a power that planted life here as the origin of our own planet's life. It's like, well, we, we pretty much agree on that then. And you just don't want to use the term God. Why? Because if it's some not all-powerful, all-knowing being, all of a sudden I retain my authority. And that's where I think as much as the battle in culture is that origin of life, we know the battle in our hearts is for authority. And we all can feel that we have fought to hang on to our own authority, to remain on the throne of our lives. And that's what we're seeing in, in Luke's gospel. So sometimes when you have doubts, like, yes, I, I, and that'll be the last point, endure on Christ. He is, a he is a bounty of evidence and refreshment for the cast out and the weary hearted and those who feel like they're beat down by the world and by your own sin. Christ is the answer. But there's also this other aspect of like, why not just saturate yourself in this idea that God actually is the creator. He is the author. And take a moment to look around you through that lens and see what creation looks like to you. Um, and I do want to play a video for you. I'll play it right now, actually, just a few minutes, because the rest of what I have is fairly concise. Um, and it's one of my favorites. And I think it would be beautiful just to watch it and like soak in that God is the creator. Person. So I love that. I'd encourage you, if you're moved by it at all, to like, hey, just maybe keep it on close by. Um, pull it up when you say, oh, man, doubts. Doubts are coming in. Man, creation... 
um, and Paul said it in Romans, like what has been done is clearly evidenced by creation, but there's another force at work, right? And that's when we go into um, the next piece of this. I do want to hit you with a couple things. Um, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live, we move, have our being. And even as some of your own poems have said, for we are indeed his offspring. But this other force, you're like, well, why doubt that? And in the parable that we're talking about in Luke 20, there's no doubt that the tenants know, like, hey, they know that there's the, the master who planted the garden. They know there's the owner. That's not really a doubt, but in our world, it is. Even the demons do not doubt that. They recognize God is real and he's in control. Um, but, oh, problem with my connection. Will you go to the next slide for me, Caleb? But we act entitled. And we've talked about entitlement in the Gospel of Luke. And what we see, the tenants thought they were entitled to more than they were ever given or expected to, to do and take control of. Um, we saw this in Luke 15 in the prodigal son. We saw the prodigal go away, spend everything frivolously, come back and receive more. And the father was overjoyed to give him back what he'd already spent and wasted. But who was bitter? The older son. Why? Because the older son always had everything. The father said, everything I've had was always yours. To the tenants in the vineyard, this is yours. You get to share in this with me. I'm allowing you to do this work. But the older son was bitter by what someone else was able to receive because they didn't act appropriately. And so in his entitlement, he was annoyed. He was frustrated um, by what the father gave. And that's why I've told you plenty to me, pay attention to your annoyances. Pay attention to your frustrations. Why does it make you so upset when X thing happens? Why are you so bitter? What do you think you deserved? And it's a great question, what you think you deserve. Um, and it's one that plagued, um, if you hit my next slide for me, the first humans in the garden. Did Adam and Eve lack for anything? If you could enter into what they had in the garden, would you take it? Absolutely. To say, our, all our needs are met. There's no doubt we get to walk with God in his very presence. And yet we found that the, Satan, uh, that the serpent had one hole to go through. That there was one chink in the armor. It's like, but don't you want to be like God? You don't have everything, was the lie. You don't have everything because you're not him. And he owns it and you're just a tenant. Can you be satisfied not being the owner? Not being the one in control? If you can be satisfied in it, know that every need, every desire of your heart will be met. But you will never be God himself. Can you be satisfied with not being in control? It's a question each one of us have, have to answer because we find that in that, um, that dissatisfaction, even a little bit, didn't have to be a lot, even a little bit, gave a window into uh, 
<laughs> complete deceit. In James, it says, what causes, James said in his letter, what causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Why are things not good, Fillmore? Is it not this, that your passions are war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight, you quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. And you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly. Because you, your passions are driving the ship. So it's a question we've talked about a lot. What do you think you deserve? What are you entitled to? Why are you so upset? Why are you so annoyed? Why are you so frustrated? If you are in Christ, you've been promised everything forever. So yes, as a church family member of yours, as a leader, when people in this church are annoyed and frustrated, I find it my business. Because I find that it's pointing to a heart that's probably not finding itself satisfied and completed in Christ. But it's one who says, I'm on the throne and I deserve this. Just like the Pharisees. Just like the tenants of this, of this garden. It is something absolutely to not neglect. And ultimately the answer to that isn't like, you need to try harder to not be frustrated. You shouldn't be so annoyed. You can't on your own. That's what we believe at Fillmore. You can't do this on your own. But to recognize it is to know we need to hit our knees and ask the one who is able to do all things. Um, in our scripture in Luke, it said there toward the end, when the Pharisees heard this whole parable, they knew, because there was a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 5, uh, it's about this vineyard. I won't read it to you, but as soon as Jesus started talking about vineyard, the Pharisees were like, all right, we know what's going on here. So as the as the parable went south for the tenants, they were like, you, I hate that you're speaking this against us. When they heard it, they said, surely not. But he looked, and I like that it says this in, in Luke's gospel. He looked directly at them. And he said, what then is this that is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the what? The cornerstone. And then he puts it in terms of a rock. The stone, uh, it goes further with the rock analogy. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. So that piece there at the end kind of has always confused me. Like, okay, either broken to pieces or crushed. Well, this is what I'm taking it to mean right now and when I studied what others have said. For you, for me, for the Pharisees, for all of us, it sounds like in verse 18, everyone's going down. There's those who fall and are broken to pieces and those who are just crushed. So what I see is two people. One who is going to fall upon that stone and is going to... Yes, be brought low, be brought to their knees in whatever way you want to see it. Um, and they're broken, but they are not destroyed. That, they, that Christ actually, when he comes into a life, he says, you are abdicating the throne. I am taking my place as authority in your life. Your life as it was represented is broken. It's gone. It's shattered. But that's okay. Because the stone that caused your life to shatter stands strong. As opposed to what I'd see as the second half of it, the, the people the stone falls on, crushes, almost annihilates, is what I would see as the Pharisees. Where it's like, I'm not falling upon that stone. I'm not falling down. I'm not bowing my knees. I'm not abdicating the throne. Well, then it will crush you. Either way, you're brought low. 
One is annihilation. The other is your life is broken and that, that you, you are now upon that rock instead of crushed by it. So you get to choose. And that's ultimately where, hey, any of the other doubts? Yeah, don't be afraid of those. Know that Christ is real. And Christ is calling you to say, let me take control. And guess who the pressure falls off of when the pressure goes on the cornerstone? Now? Falls off of you. You don't have to strain and strive so hard. Let your striving cease. And let Christ be all and in all. Um, and I hope that's what you are have on repeat in your life through Scripture. That's been on repeat in Luke's Gospel. It's repeat through the whole narrative of Scripture. But sometimes we get distracted when you come across the... the uh, coming through the land of the Canaanites and you see that destruction and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I don't know about this God. Like if you aren't sure of how that relates to Christ, just keep focusing on Christ for now. Focus on Christ. There's nothing here that is anything but taking the pressure off you and taking it upon himself to say, I've come for your salvation. And that's good. It's really good. So to end our time together today, first of all, make sure you know that Christ is your cornerstone. If you have any doubt in that, Run towards the scriptures, run towards your church leadership, run towards the, uh, to worship, make sure Christ your cornerstone, leave no doubt. Um, but in that as well, please keep, keep engaging, um, our church family. Uh, but I want to sing a uh, cornerstone together, um, which I believe I have up there. So if you would stand with me, I'll pray. And then we'll sing this as we end our time together. Father, thank you um, for the words of scripture. Thank you for the beauty of creation pointing to our good father um, who's planted and given us a vineyard here to enjoy. I think it's much bigger than we maybe account for. Um, father, thank you for the messages and the servants who have come to the vineyard to say, hey, the father's good. The owner is good. He would like to share in his creation with us. Um, let us not be the tenants who block off our hearts, but instead let us say, by all means, it was never ours to begin with. Let Christ and the Son be illuminated in us. Let us not be afraid to examine the depths of our hearts to make sure Christ is king of all of it um, and is truly our cornerstone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.